Good morning, everyone, and welcome. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. Since the COVID crisis, the LSE has been hosting a series of events trying to understand better the impact of the crisis around the world. And today, we're very fortunate to hear from Professor Silvana Tenreiro, who is a professor of economics at the LSE and an external member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England. I myself was fortunate enough to have been a deputy governor at the bank. And when I left, the governor at the time, Mark Carney, uh, said to me that the Monetary Policy Committee has never had fewer than two people from the London School of Economics on it since its inception. And Silvana continues that wonderful tradition of interaction between the LSE and the bank. She has a PhD in economics from Harvard. She's a fellow of the British Academy. She's the editor of a number of uh, of distinguished journals, and she's associated with a number of research centers, including the International Growth Center, the Center for Economic Performance, and the Center for Economic Policy Research. She's been on the MPC since July 2017 and has just had her second term renewed and will be on the committee for another three years. And she's been on the committee at a tumultuous time, in a time when they had to think about the impact of Brexit and now COVID on the UK economy. Today, she's going to share her views on the impact of COVID-19 on the UK economy and what lessons we've learned so far. So with that, I'll turn it over to Silvana and we will take questions after her talk. Thank you, Minush, for having me to speak this morning. It's great to be uh, giving this speech at the LSC, which, along with other universities and research centers in this country, has been leading the social science and policy debate on, on the COVID-19 pandemic. So let me share my screen. Thank you. Um, the scale and nature of the economic shock from COVID have been unlike anything policymakers in this country or in any advanced economy have faced in recent memory. We have had to quickly adapt to a rapidly changing situation, rethinking our assumptions as the data evolved and our understanding improved. That understanding has been guided by interactions with researchers in central banks and universities who have contributed to a rapidly expanding body of analysis and modeling of COVID and its economic effects. In my speech today, I would like to discuss some of the key insights I have taken from this research and how it has informed my policy views over recent weeks and will continue to do so as we exit lockdown. I will also touch on some of the many issues we still have to learn and where more research is therefore most urgently needed. I will highlight three main points. First, while the existing economic knowledge helped us to think about some aspects of COVID-19, researchers have had to develop a variety of new ways to think about many other aspects. A large new body of research has sprung up in response to COVID, combining epidemiology with macroeconomics. This is helping answer important questions about the interaction of the virus and people's behavior, its economic, economic effects, and the costs and benefits of different policies. Second, Behavioral responses mean that the UK economic outlook will continue to depend on the global and domestic spread of COVID-19. Assuming prevalence gradually falls, my central case forecast is for GDP to follow an interrupted or incomplete V-shaped trajectory. 
We are already seeing a sharp recovery in purchases that were restricted only because of mandated business closures. But I think the step up will be interrupted by continued risk aversion and voluntary social distancing in some sectors, and in general, by higher unemployment. Third, at our June monetary policy meeting, I thought that on balance and absent additional policy stimulus, demand would remain weaker than supply for some time, generating continuing disinflationary pressures. To counteract those pressures and bring inflation back up towards our 2% target, I voted to loosen monetary policy by expanding the stock of asset purchases. As with the rest of the committee, I remain ready to vote for further action as necessary to support the economy and ensure inflation returns to target. Let me turn to the evidence from past pandemics um, and crises. As the enormity of COVID, uh, COVID's effects on public health started to become clear in early 2020, policymakers had to quickly think through the likely effects on the economy. A natural place to start was by looking at comparable historical events. This offered a guide to how persistent the economic effects were likely to be, as well as the specific mechanisms through which they would take place. At the same time, all crises are different, and COVID-19 has had economic effects that have not really or neatly followed any historical precedent. The global spread of COVID-19 bears some similarities to past health, health crises, particularly the 1918 to 1920 flu pandemic. Despite some estimates suggesting that the 1918 flu led to one of the largest economic crises of the century, it had been relatively little studied by economists. One partial reason is that it is not straightforward to isolate its effect on the economy, given that its occurrence coincided with the end of the war. New studies of the economic impact of the 1918 flu have quickly emerged and helped inform us about possible persistence and size of the effects of COVID-19 and the containment measures imposed. Robert Barrow and co-authors found that it led to a sharp decline in output and consumption in those countries affected, with evidence that they did not fully recover, suggesting a persistent effect. Others have looked at differences across cities or regions in lockdowns imposed in 1918 through 1920, generally finding that this had large effects on activity and employment in the short run, but with conflicting results in the medium term. There are also important differences between the 1918 influenza pandemic and the current situation. The likelihood of deaths from the influenza pandemic was much higher for younger age groups and lower for older age groups relative to COVID-19. Containment measures also differed. Although lockdowns were commonplace a century ago, they were shorter and less strict than the ones we have just seen without extensive business shutdowns, for example. Given these differences, it was also instructive to examine more recent epidemics, even though these were less widespread across countries than COVID-19. Recent outbreaks that had received attention from economists included those of the coronaviruses SARS in 2002 to 2004 and MERS in 2012, as well as the swine flu in 2009 and Ebola in 2014. 
These epidemics generally resulted in sharp downturns in the countries affected. And although consumption in sectors such as travel and tourism was affected for some time, the recoveries in aggregate output were relatively rapid, resulting in V-shaped trajectories towards the pre-outbreak trend. But these episodes represented a likely lower bound for the effects of COVID-19, given their far more limited global spread and consequently lower number of deaths. The MPC's main scenario lay somewhere between these extremes. The downturn was more persistent than those after recent epidemics, but less so than under the 1918 pandemic. Although past crises did not provide perfect comparators for the current episode, they were able to inform us about the types of economic channels that were likely to take place. There had also been some efforts to model the macroeconomic effects of public health crisis, which could be calibrated to match some of the health consequences of COVID-19 in the UK. On the supply side, these studies suggested that there were likely to be reductions in labor supply for workers who were sick or caring for others, in addition to any business closure, closures required by the government. Productivity was set to fall in the short term, where changed working practices were less efficient, and in the long term, should any scaring, scarring uh, sorry, take place owing to business fa failures or higher unemployment. Internationally, we anticipated that the shutdown of supply chains would reduce capacity for production using imported intermediaries. On the demand side, uncertainty and confidence channels were likely to weigh on investment and consumption. Even absent business closures, it was likely uh, that consumption demand would fall sharply in social consumption sectors such as tourism, hospitality and live entertainment, as quickly became clear in some of the high frequency indicators in February and March. The sharp global slowdown was also expected to depress demand for UK export, exports. <clears throat> With a range of channels affecting supply and demand, a crucial question for policymakers was whether COVID-19 would generate inflationary or disinflationary pressures. This was difficult to judge purely from historical precedents for two reasons. First, the balance of demand and supply effects depends on the nature of the health effects and the health policy response, which differ from previous epidemics. The labor supply reduction owing to workers' illness or mortality has been far lower than during the 1918 flu, for example, and lockdowns were shorter and less strict um, in, in, in the current crisis, sorry, in, in the um, 1918 pandemic. Second, the effect of past episodes on aggregate demand and inflation depending on the monetary and fiscal policy response and regime at the time. To clearly identify the effect of the health crisis itself on inflation, we need to control for these responses. Those caveats aside, some recent research has attempted to use long-run historical data to assess the impact of past pandemics on key macroeconomic variables. Jordan, Singh, and Taylor use data from pandemics going back to the Black Death to estimate the average impact on equilibrium interest rates. 
They look at long-run impacts, which should be less susceptible to the impact of monetary policy, and they find that pandemics tend to reduce R-star, or the equilibrium interest rate. If COVID-19 has the same effect, it would imply that lower levels of interest rates than before would be consistent with meeting the inflation target. Bank staff analysis using similar techniques uses historical inflation data from the UK, as um, in the data I'm showing here, and seven other countries to estimate the response of inflation to pandemics. The results suggest that these episodes typically led to persistent declines in inflation. This is illustrated in this chart, which shows the response of inflation to a pandemic in eight advanced economies, including the UK. Uh, in the horizontal axis, you see the years since the pandemic started, and the vertical axis shows the percentage point change in inflation. As COVID started to exert a massive impact on economies around the world, so economies have responded by directing their research efforts towards its effects. A spate of new papers have added to our standard macroeconomic models some of the key features from basic epidemiological models. These have produced insights into how the health and economic effects of the virus were likely to interact, as well as on the economic costs and benefits of different containment policies. At their core, modern macroeconomic models contain firms that make decisions on employment, investment and production, and individuals who make two key decisions, how much to work and how much to spend or save. The canonical SIR epidemi epidemiological model simulates the spread of a virus by differentiating between individuals who are susceptible, infected, and recovered from the illness. <clears throat> the models include assumptions of varying degrees of complexity governing how individuals move between these different virus states. Over the past few months, new epimacro papers influenced especially by Eichenbaum, Revelo, and Trabant, have married together these two classes of models. In the combined epi-macro framework, susceptible individuals consider the risk of becoming infected, infected when choosing how many hours to work and how much to consume. This modeling led to at least two sets of important insights for macroeconomic policymakers. The first important set of lessons were, was about the economic effects, costs and benefits of different virus containment policies, such as uh, lockdowns. By modeling how individuals would behave absent any health intervention, Eichenbaum and co-authors are able to, to simulate the extra reduction in economic activity from introducing lockdowns. In turn, however, Reduced economic activity fits back into lower spread of the virus. Optimal government policy institutes containment measures that would slow near-term economic output even more, generating a larger recession in order to reduce virus contagion. When lockdowns were implemented around the world, the modeling insights suggested that we should view them differently from a normal recession, with some describing them instead as a one-off investment in public health. 
As understanding of the virus has improved, other papers have modeled more complex policies where lockdowns or self-isolation is encouraged or mandated for some industries, age groups, or combined with different testing strategies. The second important lesson was that even absent any public health containment policy, individuals would voluntarily reduce their consumption and restrict labor supply. While the virus was transmitting widely, individuals faced some risk of catching it when consuming, for example, shopping or attending functions. Assuming the consumption risk could not be fully mitigated, one natural response to this captured by the models was to consume less. The MPC included some of this voluntary social distancing in the scenario in our May report. The behavior waked on consumption and only gradually unwound over 2020 and 2021. In the model, a similar mechanism applies to the labor supply decision, although in reality, many workers do not have the same flexibility to vary their working hours as their consumption spending. <clears throat> Modeling by bank staff illustrated how voluntary social distancing could affect consumption in the UK. This chart shows simulations of an epidemic using a model similar to Eichenbaum, Revelo, and Trabant. The blue line, light blue line, uh, shows a case where people continue working and consuming as normal despite the risk of infection. The red line simulates what happens with mandated containment measures, such as lockdowns, which led to a reduction in infections and deaths. And the yellow lines show how the economy responds with no official containment measures, but when people respond to lower their own individual risk. Although stylized, the model simulation suggests that while consumption falls most under an imposed lockdown, a large fraction of the decline may have occurred anyway due to voluntary social distancing, even absent official measures. This scenario also results in fewer infections than with no behavioral response, although more than under a lockdown. The scenarios showed, shown here are V-shaped. By assumption, consumption and hours return to their previous trends. But variants of the model can also explore more persistent voluntary social distancing or scarring effects. The effect of voluntary social distance, uh, distancing has been evident in some of the UK consumption data. In the run-up to the UK lockdown at the end of March, Retail, of, re, retail footfall and various indicators of social consumption, such as restaurant uh, bookings, illustrated here, all fell sharply, even though businesses were still open at the time. As the lockdown ends, the extent to which this behavior wakes on consumption, again, is a key uncertainty for the MPC. Since lockdown measures have begun to be lifted, we have seen consumption pick up in sectors where risks of catching the virus are small. But even after many businesses reopened, the early signs are that social consumption is not recovering as quickly <clears throat> as illustrated here in the red line, which shows um, social consumption. Consumer behavior is, is difficult to predict, especially in response to extreme or rare events such as the current crisis. 
both imposed lockdowns and voluntary social distancing cause reductions in activity. But both are also more likely to take place when COVID-19 is more prevalent in the community. Disentangling these effects is tricky. One use, useful way of gauging their relative size is to compare across regions, since the virus has spread and lockdowns have been introduced or relaxed at different times in different places. Using US real-time data, Raj Chetty and co-authors show that consumer spending evolved very similarly in different US states, irrespective of when they decided to lock down and whether they decided to reopen. This is illustrated here, um, taken from Chetty's paper. Using mobile phone records of shopping trips, Woolsby and Severson find that legal restrictions explain only around one-tenth of the large reduction in consumer traffic, with individual choices explaining the vast, the vast majority. Um, let me now turn to um, distributional issues. Uh, one of the most striking aspects of the economic effect of COVID-19 is how uneven they have been. In order to gauge these effects, we need to understand well its impact on people consuming from and working in different industries and occupations. To do so, we need to use models with, in the economics jargon, heterogeneity. In the past, macroeconomic research has been criticized for often assuming away important distributional issues. Fortunately, there has been much progress introducing heterogeneity into macroeconomics over the past couple of decades, partly enabled by advances in, computer, in computing power. Entering the COVID-19 crisis, economists were therefore well prepared to explain and predict many of its key effects. I would pick out three areas in which there have been important insights from this literature. First, Models of multiple sectors told us that although the direct effects of COVID-19 on output were concentrated in some industries, this could lead to large spillovers in other sectors. Even if the initial reduction in output was due to falls in supply, the second round spillovers would affect aggregate demand, making it likely to fall more than aggregate supply. Veronica Guerrieri and co-authors model this phenomenon explicitly. When there are multiple sectors, reductions in supply in some sectors, for example, due to business closures, lead to falls in income for their employees. This causes a subsequent reduction in demand for goods produced in unaffected sectors. The fall in demand can be larger than the initial fall in supply, which is not the case when all sectors are affected equally. In a different setting, our former LSE colleague David Bakayi and Emmanuel Fari use a multi-sector model with a detailed input-output structure to present scenarios in which the omnibus of supply and demand shocks, as they called it, lead to spillovers across different sectors. In the UK data, we saw sharp enforced falls in consumption during the lockdown. But for most categories of consumption, these have now largely unwound. On the face of it, this might suggest that the spillovers to consumption from falls in income have been small in practice. However, for most workers, by far the largest potential fall in income arises if they are made unemployed. 
And although a great number of workers have unfortunately already lost their jobs, many others have been able to maintain much of their income during the crisis via the government's coronavirus job retention scheme. The likelihood of large spillovers to aggregate demand will depend strongly on the outlook for the labor market over the coming quarters. And I'll come back to this point. A second insight relates to the fact that job losses and income reductions are likely to fall disproportionately on low-income households. Since they tend to spend a larger share of their income, this could have greater subsequent effects on spending for those households than if the losses had been spread more equally, even if the implications for aggregate consumption may not be as large. Our LSE colleague, Ben Moll, and his co-authors model how low-income, low-wealth households suffer the worst economic consequences from the virus and containment policies. Hasioglu, Kansig, and Zurico present UK data showing that the percentage falls in income have been largest for more economically vulnerable groups. The reasons low-income households have been more affected relate to some of the other distributional issues. Many service sector industries, such as hospitality, where the risk of spreading COVID-19 is thought to be, the, to be higher, are also relatively low wage. Since these industries have um, faced stronger imposed or voluntary social distancing measures, they have generally suffered greater than average losses in output from the COVID crisis. Um, this is illustrated in this chart. Um, which shows um, the percentage falls in, in, in uh, value-added and um, uh, the share um, of um, uh, by sector. This, um, by the way, have also been the industries where firms have furloughed the largest shares of their employees using the coronavirus job retention scheme. Some of the worst hit sectors are those in which working from home uh, which is um, portrayed on the right-hand side of this uh, slide, is difficult or impossible, which is likely to have amplified some of the disparities. These are also sectors with higher female employment shares, which may lead to greater job losses among women than men. A third important distributional concern is um, in, in the current crisis arises because COVID-19 leads to quite different health outcomes for different age groups. These differences need to be taken into account when considering the amount of voluntary social distancing that is likely to take place. For example, younger age groups are likely to cut consumption less than older ones if they take into account their lower risks from the virus. This might reduce the amount of voluntary social distancing and therefore increase incremental impact of lockdowns on spending. Several papers have also suggested that a better balance between maintaining economic activity and reducing the spread of the virus may be possible with containment measures and incentives targeted by age. For example, Argente, Sie and Leave find that in South Korea, Policies that disclosed detailed location data of COVID cases reduced food traffic in neighborhoods in which they lived or had traveled. Using these findings in the SIR model suggests that such policies could reduce case numbers with a lower economic cost than lockdowns, although this must be weighed against costs from loss of privacy. The economic gains 
uh, come from encouraging self-selection into voluntary social distancing among demographics and in locations where risks are highest. Uh, let me now turn to um, standing, some of uh, the outstanding issues. Um, drawing on the latest economic research, policymakers have learned a great deal about the effects of COVID-19 over the past few months. But there remain many uncertainties and unanswered questions. Making progress towards answering, answering them will likely be a two-way process with policymakers taking lessons from the latest research and researchers learning from practical policy decisions and their impact. There are a few areas where I think we still have much to learn and which in my view should be a near-term priority. <clears throat> Many of the macroeconomic studies I have discussed have been theoretical, but as the data comes in, we will need to continue to test and validate different hypotheses. By necessity, the initial findings on COVID-19 came largely from modeling work, as well as insights from similar historical episodes. Since official data are published with a lag, economists and statisticians also quickly adapted, making use of new real-time data sources. As the data continue to come in, it will be essential to keep devising empirical strategies to identify the effects of the virus and improve our understanding of different containment measures. Interpretation of the aggregate data will be complicated by various practical and conceptual difficulties. Standard empirical techniques for analyzing and forecasting macroeconomic time series may become less appropriate in the face of such extreme movements in the data. Although economists are already coming up with ways to address these challenges. On the data side, I have previously discussed the many difficulties affecting CPI inflation measurement and interpretation. Elsewhere, data on average wages and productivity will be skewed by large compositional effects since layoffs are likely to be concentrated in low wage sectors with low measured productivity. For monetary policymakers, one of the most important issues to understand will be any changes in the transmission of policy brought about by COVID-19. We already know that the role of monetary policy in meeting the remit was quite different from usual during the lockdown period. With many businesses closed owing to public health policy, no amount of expansionary monetary policy could boost activity in those sectors. And Unusually, an unusually large part of the transmission of interest rate policy was instead aimed at mitigating cash flow difficulties by lowering borrowing costs and providing liquidity. As the economy opens up, we will need to understand the extent to which monetary as well as fiscal policy is still able to boost demand as normal. Even as legal restrictions on businesses are removed, it may be that voluntary social distancing hinders the ability of policy to increase activity in some sectors and potentially in aggregate. Veronica Guerrieri and co-authors and David Bacayi and Emmanuel Fari all find that aggregate demand policy injects less stimulus than usual after negative sectoral shocks in their models. My own conjecture is that some of the sectoral changes we are seeing could limit the usefulness of empirical estimates of the aggregate transmission mechanism, including relationships such as the aggregate Phillips curve. 
a closely related question is what, in an ideal world, optimal economic policy should do. For the MPC, the answer is straightforward. We will strive to meet our mandate by achieving the 2% inflation target. For broader economic policy, research can tell us in the context of an economic model with given assumptions on societal preferences, what might be optimal for welfare. The answers may depend on whether some of the changes in behavior and attitudes toward, toward risk that we have seen are temporary or permanent. If transitory policies that return the economy as close as policy to its pre-crisis path may be preferable. If permanent, then policies will instead need to facilitate the transition to new patterns of demand and supply. Let me now turn to um, the current outlook. Um, turning back to monetary policy, the challenge for the MPC is to assess how COVID-19 the lockdown and its subsequent easing will interact to determine the outlook for demand, supply and inflation. The MPC will be publishing its collective view in August, but ahead of that, I would like to set out my own thinking, including the reasons behind my vote in June to expand our asset purchase program by a further 100 billion. The latest monthly GDP data suggests we're on track for a reduction of nearly 25% in 2020 Q2, relative to the 2019 Q4 peak. This still looks to be less severe than in the illustrative scenario the MPC published in May, but I do not read too much into the precise figure, neither its absolute weakness nor the downside surprise in the latest monthly data. Activity was extraordinarily weak during the lockdown, but a large part of this was a direct consequence of business closures and other public health restrictions. The scale of the GDP fall largely reflects the timing and the extent of lockdown measures, and the same will be true for the initial step in the recovery in output and business, uh, as businesses reopen. For purchases that were constrained only by the lockdown, we should initially see a relatively V-shaped jump in activity beginning in Q3. The key uncertainty is how much the V will be interrupted by other factors weighing on demand and supply. Two near-term uh, factors stand out. First, the possible feedback from higher unemployment particularly in some badly affected sectors, to lower aggregate demand, and if persistent, to lead to greater scar scarring. Second, effects of voluntary or mandated social distancing on demand and supply in social consumption sectors. The imminent rise in the unemployment rate was not yet visible in the official labor market data for April. But more timely indicators suggest it will soon be visible in the headline numbers. <clears throat> Vacancies have dried up and the employment survey balances are consistent with a sharp fall in employment in the rest of Q2, even if they cannot reliably inform us about its scale. This is illustrated in this chart. Higher unemployment in some sectors is likely to feed into lower demand for goods and services produced in others, especially if layoffs are concentrated in households less able to borrow. 
unemployment would, would already be far higher if it were not for the sizable uptake of the coronavirus job retention scheme. But the latest indicators, indications from the bank's agents suggested a further risk that many furloughed workers would not be reabsorbed into employment as the scheme is wound down. Recent large-scale redundancy announcements are consistent with this, although the new job retention bonus may mitigate the risk for some workers. The persistence of higher unemployment will partly depend on how long voluntary and mandated social distancing weigh on activity. On the demand side, as the lockdown is eased, I expect voluntary social distancing to continue to drag on consumption in sectors where the perceived risk of spreading COVID-19 remains high, such as hospitality and travel. Recent survey data suggests a majority of people would still be uncomfortable going to indoor restaurants or cinemas, for example, as illustrated in this chart. For goods and services involving social interaction, evidence from other countries suggests that a key determinant will be the actual prevalence of the virus. The effect of voluntary social distancing will therefore depend on whether case numbers continue to decline. Assuming they do, there's still likely to be some lag between confirmed cases and perceived risks, although behavior could also be affected by recent fiscal measures to boost social consumption spending. On the supply side, there could be negative effects on productivity in some occupations. This could stem from mandated social distancing, which may reduce the amount that can be produced in a given space, or from remote working being less efficient for some workers. On balance, these uncertainties suggest to me considerable downside risks for demand relative to supply. The global outlook remains weak, given the continued spread of the virus around the world and especially its resurgence in the United States. This global picture, together with significant uncertainty and a subdued outlook for consumption, will all serve to drag on business investment. Last but not least, the risk of a second wave domestically or abroad brings additional uncertainty into the outlook. Highly supportive fiscal policy will make government spending the main of offsetting comp uh, component of GDP. Putting this demand outlook together with the pre-existing weakness in core inflation, we are likely to see disinflationary pressures for some time. Headline inflation will continue to weaken in the near term, given a continuing sizable impact from lower energy prices and a negative contribution from the recent cuts in VAT. Although these effects on headline inflation should prove temporary, in order to use up spare capacity and bring inflation back to target, policy needs to continue to support aggregate demand through the crisis. This should also benefit the supply side of the economy by acting to offset business failures and persistently high unemployment, which would ultimately feed through into lower potential output. Although fiscal policy is providing significant support to the economy and to individual workers and sectors, monetary policy also has a role to play to try to maintain aggregate demand in line with supply and ensure price stability. In June, I therefore voted with the majority of the MPC to increase our stock of asset purchases. 
lower guilt yields and higher asset prices induced by QE will lead to some aggregate demand stimulus, although the low prevailing level of the yield curve may reduce the impact somewhat relative to some of the MPC's previous asset purchases announcement. As with the rest of the committee, I remain ready to vote for further actions as necessary to support the economy and ensure inflation returns to target. Um, I will conclude here, Minouj, and I will be happy to, to take questions. Um, very good. Thank you very much, Silvana, for a comprehensive uh, diagnosis of where we're at and your views on, on, on the policy outlook. Let me just start with a question for me, and then we've got lots of questions coming from the audience. Um, you described your diagnosis of the recovery as an interrupted V-shaped, which could be interrupted by feedback from high unemployment on aggregate demand and the impact on distancing on demand in certain sectors. And my question is, is an interrupted V really a U? And, uh, <laughs> and then related to that, you showed some very interesting charts of previous pandemic and what happened to, to inflation. And the pattern tended to be three years of deflation and then a return to normal levels of inflation. And I wondered whether you could discuss whether your, your views on the current situation in the UK are consistent with those past pandemics? And what about the particular risks of high debt accumulation in this pandemic, which didn't happen so much in the previous pandemics? One of the questions from someone in the audience, Robert Farrago's on the same lines, is what, what are the inflationary risks associated with the very high levels of government debt in this pandemic? And how might that pattern of, of inflation differ from, from the past? Over to you. Thank you, Minos. There are many questions there. Okay, so let me just state the obvious that um, how we describe the recovery depends, you know, as a, either a V or a U, depends on what we put in the horizontal axis in the time space. Because something that can look V shaped in annual space might be a U in monthly space. Um, so when I talk about V-shape, I'm talking about quarterly space. So I see the second uh, leg of the V uh, stepping up in Q3. And that's, you know, after that is where I see that interruption that will merge into a swoosh uh, uh, or, you know, a lopsided V if you want. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I see a, a very initial fast recovery in Q3 and Q4, and then we uh, will hit the, the ceiling. Um, I show you graphs uh, from past pandemics showing um, three years of deflation, as you uh, 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 described, uh, the way to interpret this is absent the monetary policy intervention. Um, and so what I see is uh, very strong disinflationary pressures, uh, given that demand will uh, lag behind supply. But of course, there's where the Monetary Policy Committee will step in and make sure uh, to bring inflation uh, uh, back to its target. Um, so we will be monitoring these developments very closely and of course we'll be adjusting if, if there are uh, long-term scarring effects on, on the supply side, obviously we will need to uh, adjust to that as well. And there will be a, a constant conversation with 
you know, the epidemiologists, with the um, um, the policy response and um, fiscal policy response, and so on. So. Um, so the aim of those figures were to show the natural forces controlling, let's say, for the um, responses of fiscal or monetary policy. Um, and that is, is a huge issue, is incredibly um, um, important uh, and, and, and a very pressing issue uh, for the corporate sector right now and the whole discussion uh, is, is what to do with this uh, legacy. Um, that doesn't translate into inflation. Inflation is under the MPC remit, and what we will do is try to comply with our remit and bring inflation back to target. There's no direct link between debt and inflation, and so so that's um, that. I definitely don't see that immediate connection that um, um, was uh, was portrayed. We will do our best to um, uh, restore price stability. That's our mandate, um, and. And obviously, that is, is a problem for the Treasury to sort out, and, and there will be a conversation with the business and corporate sector to how to um, deal with that. But that's outside of our remit and scope. Very good. So there's a question from Ewan Grant. Uh, given rapidly rising unemployment and fear of it, has there been a significant rise in savings rates in advanced economies? Where will taxes come from to compensate for reduced consumption tax revenues? Um, we've seen a big increase in savings. I don't think it was voluntary. It was mostly because, again, uh, people were compensated, you know, had access to some replacement of income, but they couldn't spend it. So this was um, involuntary um, savings. But it's true that as the risk of unemployment and health risk become uh, more prevalent in people's mind, uh, that will lead to uh, higher savings or lo lower consumption as a precautionary measure. I think what we've seen so far has been more involuntary, but is, is that voluntary saving or precautionary behavior that is coming and will become uh, more evident as uh, unemployment increases. Tax, how tax, the tax issue is outside of my remit and I will leave uh, Treasury people to answer how they will um, address that. I've got two questions on the uh, MPC policy response. One uh, from Chris Crow saying the OBR central scenario for borrowing this year included the additional 50 billion associated with the news last week uh, in, in the fiscal event, which is around 370 billion. Compared to the 290 billion estimate at the time of the MPC's decision to undertake the additional 100 billion of QE. Given the additional issuance of, of gilts, what impact has that had on financial conditions? And do you think that means the BOE may have to increase the pace of gilt purchases? And then I've got another question on negative interest rates. And what is the current bank thinking on negative interest rates? And what's your personal view on negative interest rates? So one on more curious. Okay. First comments. response to Chris, we are not tracking issuance. We have a remit and that's what we are doing. We are trying to achieve price stability and the rationale for uh, more QE and for lowering interest rates earlier on was to comply with our um, 
remit of um, 2% inflation and subject to that, yes, support uh, employment and growth. But we are not um, dependent on issuance. Um, I don't think the government is finding any trouble financing their issuance. And um, I, I, again, these are more questions for um, the DMO, but I, I think they found it uh, very easy. Um, it's been a very easy task for them to uh, sell those bonds in uh, in the market, so um, so it's it's not a concern. Um, negative rates. Uh, so as as the governor has said previously, um, and uh, we're not ruling them in, we're not ruling them out. Uh, it's a live issue at the bank. We're conducting a review on negative rates, and there will be a decision taken by the MPC on whether to go for negative rates or not. Um, there are two questions. One is the feasibility. Um, can we go into negative territory without putting at risk the financial stability um, objectives of the bank? And the second question is, even if feasible, is that the optimal policy for the current situation? And so these are questions that we will be uh, addressing. Uh, I don't have a personal view. I can read the evidence from <clears throat> other countries, and we have a, um, a body of evidence uh, from Denmark, Switzerland, Sweden, uh, the Eurozone area. Um, these are um, they, they all implemented negative rates. They have a very um, uh, stimulative effect on the economy. Um, again, if you consider the counterfactual of having stayed with uh, high interest rates. And... Encouragingly, they didn't um, lead to losses in profitability in banks, uh, which is the main fear for financial stability. So the evidence from the continent and from Denmark, Sweden, uh, has been uh, on, on balance um, encouraging. Uh, obviously, we have to think of what are the issues um, faced by UK banks and whether there are stability concerns that don't um, were not present in the euro area or in Denmark, and, and that's the type the analysis that is is going on and under the review. So I've got another question from Ben Moll. So you showed some striking graphs of restaurant visits and other social consumption falling off a cliff and remaining persistently low even after lockdown has been eased. With that in mind, what do you make of the Chancellor's eat out to help out subsidy for restaurant visits? On the one hand, it's important to help the financially vulnerable workers in the hospitality industry. But on the other hand, people don't go to restaurants for a reason, namely that infection risk is higher in restaurants. If you're going to do anything, don't you think there's an externality and people do not voluntarily socially distance enough rather than too much? And so should we be subsidizing risky behavior like restaurants visits or should we use the money to transfer to those workers to extend furlough? Yeah, I, I would not comment on fiscal policy. We try to keep a separation. Um, but as you know, Ben, this is where models of optimal fiscal policy could help shed light on how you manage those trade-offs. Um, so we need your models and better calibrated models to look at the optimal policy, assess what, what are the health risk in, re, risks involved and how we um, trade off the need to stimulate the economy versus, uh, you know, keeping uh, the virus uh, contained. Um, so, and this is why it's extremely important, again, to have the input from modelers um, 
like Ben and other colleagues who, who have been uh, working hard on, on trying to uh, get the analytical tools to, to do good, you know, policy um, uh, addressing these issues. Um, so let me uh, stop there. Okay. We've got a question from Bronwyn Curtis, who's an LSE alumni. Uh, if, as you say, the low prevailing level of the yield curve does limit the impact of QE, does the MPC risk doing too much QE and creating distortions like asset price bubbles? If so, should the MPC hold fire for the time being and wait to see what the effect the current huge monetary and fiscal stimulus has had? So let me say there's there's nothing stop. We have um, we can undo or unwind any QE excess we see very easily. So there's no obstacle to that. So if we see that uh, we overdid it, that could be unwound. And what guys um, and 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 what frames the decision again is the remit. Um, what I said is that QE might be less effective now because of low yields, but that doesn't render it ineffective. So uh, it provides an extra stimulus, uh, li uh, liquidity. It calms fears that calms fears that uh, there might be another um, uh, liquidity. Um, uh, or dysfunction in markets. So, um, so in that sense, we saw it as as contributing to you know the accommodative sense that uh, we thought was needed. But um, uh, I, I'm I'm not worried about having overdone it at this stage. And if that point comes, at, we we will be uh, uh, ready to uh, um, uh, to you know uh, tighten policy as needed. Yeah. Got one from Takwa bin Abu Bakr. How do you foresee this crisis affecting income inequalities in the UK? We've seen already the first effects. As I said, the, the effects of COVID have been very unequal and, and they have fallen mostly in low income, low wealth workers. Um, so if anything, that part would accentuate disparities in, in, in income inequality. Um, the government has stepped in to um, uh, to support the most vulnerable, uh, but again, the, how we come out of this will depend on on what fiscal policy does after. Um, and uh, but as if on impact, the main shock has has contributed to higher inequality. And, and uh, that's can I ask you, Silvana, to speculate about what you think the impact on productivity will be? Oh, okay. So measure productivity might uh, show, you know, an increase again because you are a paradoxical uh, situation, isn't it? Exactly. But we shouldn't read anything about it. It's not a positive um, for uh, for economics. And uh, sometimes, you know, we're obsessed obsessed about productivity. We could increase productivity by having just the most productive firm in the economy and everyone un unemployed, and that's not the goal. So um, I think. Uh, Overall, the impact will be a negative one because, again, all the um, distancing uh, requirements and even working from home is, is in general less efficient. So, and, and, and there is a loss in, in terms of skills as you know people are unemployed. There might be effects, scarring effects, on uh, on the unemployed. Uh, we will have also. Um, issues with mental health that might impinge on productivity. Um, so overall, I think the effects will be negative. Um, but again, in measured productivity, we might see that um, 
um, an increase. But okay, I've got uh, a question from Summer Shardine. I think this might be our last one. What are the main weaknesses in the economy that such a short amount of time has caused such economic problems? There was no four-year war. Uh, hospitals, pharmacies, labs, transport, education, delivery, etc. What were all working? And now we and now we know the major age and employment areas affected by COVID. Wouldn't a more selective and sectorized lockdowns work better? In other words, was the wide was the wide lockdown a huge economic mistake? There was certainly a lot of learning from this experience, and as I um, alluded to in in my speech, there's a lot of new work now focusing on smarter lockdowns or more localized ones. Uh, there's and 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 I think you know the future will look more like um, those type of lockdowns. Um, when the crisis hit, the priority was to prepare the economy, uh, to prepare the health system, to be ready to uh, to cope with um, um, uh, the illness. And uh, there was much that was not known. And I think, um, uh, yeah, uh, in the future, we, we would have learned. And in fact, you know, the countries in, uh, in Asia that had experience with epidemics and pandemics in some sense reacted much um, um, you know, much much more efficiently to um, to the um, to the crisis. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, Silvana, thank you so much for that thoughtful and rigorous diagnosis of the current situation. You really laid out uh, this new emerging field of epidemiology and macroeconomics, which. Uh, which is trying to integrate the impact of pandemics on macroeconomic policy. It is very much a new frontier, and you and your colleagues at the, at the MPC are very much forging that frontier and trying to understand what the appropriate policy response is to this very new set of challenges that we're all facing. So thank you so much for, for, for that presentation. Thank you also to members of the audience for excellent questions. And please do join us again at the LSE for our COVID-19, How It's Shaping the World series. And, uh, and thank you very much for joining us.